I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Just so uh, we're looking ahead a couple of weeks, um, not next week, but beginning in uh, two weeks, the second week of, uh, of September, we will begin our, our new sermon series. Uh, we'll be looking for the foreseeable future uh, at the uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, as you have in the past, or as we have in the past, we'll uh, be sending out uh, a note and uh, of some of the resources that will help enhance this series, your understanding and appreciation of the, of the passages that we consider. Uh, we'll have the scripture journals that will be available to you and so that you'll be able to uh, take notes in your own study or, or during the series and, and some additional resources. There's a constant theme that runs through the book of Hebrews that you will hear, uh, and it's worthwhile remembering, and that theme is, Jesus is better. Now, you may ask, well, what is the question? It doesn't really matter. The answer is Jesus is better. That's what you will find uh, throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, But for today, I want to look at a passage that is familiar uh, for many. Uh, It's one that I have gone to, either to this or uh, parallel uh, passages, uh, that I consider to be foundational for our faith. And so I do this as a a point of encouragement to us in our own spirituality, as a point of a vision uh, for the foundation uh, for us as a, a church, and that is found in Matthew chapter 22 in a discussion that Jesus is having with a, a, uh, a Pharisee uh, attorney, in my mind, a, a young uh, uh, attorney uh, who happens to be among the Pharisee party. Uh, and so if you will, now with your Bibles open, let's uh, together hear God's word beginning uh, in verse 34, Matthew 22. Hear the word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he had, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come and gather this morning, we praise you for you are worthy of praise But we honor you now as we listen, as you speak by your spirit and your word. I pray that you would particularly entune us to these words of Jesus as he not only speaks, um, but as he embodies and as he calls his followers to also walk. And so, Lord, as you speak to us, may we honor you not only by listening, but with a predisposition to do as you call us to do, that we may live lives that honor you, that glorify you, and that please you. We pray this with the great assurance that you are at work, that you are shaping us all, that we may become more like Christ. So Lord, do that work as we consider this passage. and Continue that work until we all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, our King. Amen. Much to the frustration of my teachers and the exasperation of my parents, 
I was not what one would have called a particularly diligent or conscientious student in junior high school. Carolyn seemed somewhat amused when she was given my report cards. My mother had saved them um, and gave them to Carolyn, and there was essentially a similar refrain that came from all of the teachers and all of the subjects for both 7th and 8th grade. Had Carolyn reviewed my 6th grade and 5th grade and 4th grade, I suspect something similar would have also been found in them. And that was, he's intelligent enough, just doesn't seem to be particularly invested in learning. And that was probably true. In part, it was true. I did learn. I just didn't learn on their timetable. And so therefore, when it was time for testing or for papers and homework to be due, it didn't quite meet the standards that were set by my school at that point in time. That was my early educational experience, with the exception of one day. There was one day when I was in junior high, where despite my normal, intelligent enough, but not particularly invested, there was one day that I excelled above almost all of my other classmates. I don't remember if I was in seventh or eighth grade, but I do remember the, the day fairly vividly. Our social study teacher, for whatever other reason, had decided to set aside the, uh, the assignment that we had been given for that day, which was probably good, because chances of my having done the homework and had it with me were probably pretty minimal. But as they were handing out the handouts for all the students to participate in an exercise, the teacher was quite emphatic, and he said, make sure that you read through the entire page before you begin your work. And the first instruction on the heading of the page is read through the entire page before you begin your work. And so as the papers were all handed out and you heard things rustling, throughout the class there was kind of a, 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 a buzz for some people, some quizzical looks on people's minds. And then throughout the class, popping up at different times, people would stand up and perhaps spin around and then sit back down. And then people would say their name out loud and a number of other antics. And most of the class was participating in all these things, except for me and a few others. Because on this particular day, for whatever the reason, I actually had paid attention, followed the directions. And the last two instructions on the page that you were supposed to read through before you began the work were this. Ignore all previous instructions put your pencil down and sit quietly. And so on that day, I sat at my desk quietly while all these good students were all getting up and making fools of themselves. And I had the day that I can still remember today, of shining better than all of these other people who made me feel bad about myself because of their test scores versus mine. Now, I bring that to you as a sense of confession and counseling can come afterwards, but also because I, this came to mind this week when I was looking at this passage and I was considering how this passage speaks to us and why this passage matters to us in our lives. Because if we were to go out into the world as a whole, whether it's church or outside of the church, and just ask this question, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone would give us a set of instructions that would help us navigate this world, to help us navigate this life? And almost everyone would say, absolutely, it would be wonderful if somebody would give us instructions. Life is complicated. This world is difficult. And so having a set of instructions on how we're to navigate it would be great. Now, in this church, you're already probably way ahead of me and many other churches. And the reality is we do have a set of instructions on how to navigate this world. It's called the Bible. God has spoken to us, told us how the world works, tells us what we need to be, tells us what is, is the problem. He tells us a, a number of things that is intended to help us to navigate this world and at the same time relate to him. But here's the problem for many people, including many people in the church, and 
a problem that many in the church don't really want to admit. This is a thick book. There's a lot of things written in here. And some of the things written in here seem to be confusing. The volume of it itself is difficult to keep up with. The ancient Jewish scholars came up with 613 different commands in the Old Testament alone. 365 positive ones, things that you ought to do, and whatever the rest, 200 and what's that, 200 and some uh, others, uh, 38, I believe it is, uh, of prohibitions, things that you ought not to. And, and then in that day, the religious scholars, they took not only if 613 commandments was not enough, they made up other commandments so that you didn't get close to breaking the commandments that were actually given by God. Who can remember 613 different laws, 613 commandments, much less obey every single one of them? It is difficult because of the volume. And then it is difficult because of the same reason that many of my classmates on that particular day failed to navigate through that exercise. Because there are many people, and this is true of many people in the church, who have studied this word, and they can quote these words to you because they've memorized many of the passages and many of the stories. But they have failed to do what we would call rightly dividing the word. In other words, they can tell you the principles, they can tell you the stories, they can tell you certain aspects, but they don't know what fits where. And so therefore, while they are living their lives, trying to follow the instructions, they are like my classmates who stood up reading and yet doing the wrong thing because they don't understand the context in which these things have been given. They don't understand that the scripture says to us that there are things of first importance in the scripture. There are other things then of secondary importance. And there are things that theologians and Bible scholars would call of tertiary importance. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing in here that is not important. There is nothing unimportant in this word. But there are things that are of first importance, and those things create a framework for the things that are of secondary importance, and then tertiary are the things that are, you know, God said it, it's, it's important, but it, it's not a principle necessarily that you were to build your life upon. It's, and so we understand where things fit. We know what is of first importance passage that we read this morning is one of those of first importance. We know this because of the nature of the question to Jesus. Jesus, what is the most important command in all of the law? And Jesus gives an answer of what is most important. See, I'm clue into some of those things at times. You know, if Jesus says it's most important, that clues me in. It's probably among the most important. It is a framework. And he answers in a, in a twofold way. He answers, the most important is to love the Lord your God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. He gives a twofold. This could be essentially two, two rails uh, that create the track by which we are called to track throughout this life, to navigate the journey, whatever the terrain, we are to have our wheels attached to both of those rails, wherever it is we're going, whatever it is that we are facing. Theologian, by the name of Scott McKnight, calls Jesus' response the, the Jesus Creed. And Scott McKnight's a brilliant man. I don't recommend a, a lot of his books because there's a whole bunch of stuff I, I disagree with, and I feel better because there's people who are as smart as him who also disagree with him. Great insights, but 
you know, sometimes can be off. But I think in this case, he is very much on target because this is Jesus expressing to us what is of most importance and it meets both aspects of whatever we consider to be a creed. When you hear the word creed, we can think of it in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one of which is that it is a, a written or a written statement of, of particular beliefs. It's written in a way so that we are reminded, so that we can share it, that we can communicate it uh, accurately, uh, not only over geography, but through time as well. And that use of the word creed would be applied to like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and other creeds that have been written throughout history that just declare certain truths that the scriptures have spoken to us so that we can remember them, and it's in the case of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, so that we can have a concise statement of those things that are of first importance. Those beliefs that we can remember, we can be reminded, and we can share with other people. But the word creed is used in another way as well. The word creed is not just a set of beliefs, but a creed is also a set of principles that guide one's life. It's a set of principles by which somebody is committed to living their life. And in that sense, Jesus' response here meets both aspects of being a creed. It is a set of two beliefs, two st statements. It, it speaks of the preeminence, the priority, and the importance of God, and the value of everybody else, all, all of humanity that's created after the image of God. And, and yet it's more than just recognizing, it's calling us to something. It's calling us to action. It's calling us to, to love, which is never a passive word in the scriptures. It's calling us to love God, and it's calling us to love our neighbors, the two rails that we navigate this life with. And because Jesus not only taught this, but it is his life throughout the Gospels, as you see that, he was constantly God-faced, and others faced. He was God-oriented and available and cared and ministered to others. That was the nature of his life. These words express his creed. These words express the creed by which he calls all who would follow him to also to embrace, to adopt, to employ, and to act upon. These are the words that should frame the way that we live our lives as individuals, and I pray increasingly as a church. So this morning I want to I want to explore and kind of dig into some of the principles that we have in this particular passage. As we do so, I, I found this statement written by Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner to be a, a particularly insightful for us because he addresses our contemporary context and then connects the, uh, the eternal uh, creed uh, to it. And so listen to what Bruner says. He says this, because God is so dim in the modern consciousness. Now, we've got to be clear here. It's not that God is ever dim, but our consciousness is so dim. And because we're not focused on God, we are not uh, conscious of God in our, our present modern context. Because God is or seems so dim in the modern consciousness, Jesus' answer startles his hearers into a centeredness. In other words, he is now declaring something around which we relate our lives, by which we live our lives. Jesus' answer startles his hearers into a centeredness. And here's what he's saying. The purpose of living is the adoration of God and the cherishing of human beings. 
It's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. The two, the two rails that take us on our, 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 our journey through this life are lived out by adoring God and cherishing human beings. Now, as we look at this, the first thing that I want to make sure that we all are clear about is the priority. Because sometimes that is overlooked or it is merely assumed. And when something is assumed, it's not long before it becomes overlooked. But which is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers that without any equivocation. The greatest, the most important thing is our relationship with God, adoring God, loving God. The most important commandment in all the law, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, and your strength, with, with innocence, with, with all of your being. That is the most important. Jesus doesn't just say it, but he reemphasizes that's the most important thing in the law. Now, in one sense, many of us who are here are going to say, well, of course, uh, that is right. But I point that priority out because more and more in our culture and what is coming in different expressions of Christianity, and in some cases it is not really Christianity at all, we are confusing that priority. The reason being there are some Bible scholars who would say that when Jesus says, and the second is like it, they take the akin, they take the likeness as being so much as if they are twins. So that the engagement with other human beings, the loving and practical ways of other human beings, is equal to loving God. And yet that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is clearly saying there's something that is of first importance and there is something that is vitally important, is inseparable from that, because Jesus adds that in. It wasn't even, even asked about that, but he felt that it was so important that he would add in this phrase. And yet it remains of secondary importance. And we as a people need to be very clear that there is an importance. This is not confusing the issue. The primary purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to enjoy Him now and forever. That is not the sole purpose, but that is the primary and the unrivaled purpose of our lives. And this passage makes it very clear we were created for God. We were not created to live alone, but we were created individually and, and in communities to relate to our God. And therefore, our primary relationship, our primary orientation needs to be toward our God. And Jesus says, what's most important is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. A number of years ago, I was having lunch with a, a friend of mine, a man who was a member of the church I had served at that time. I'll call him George. In the course of the conversation, probably had asked, so how are you doing spiritually? And overall, I think he was doing all right. But came to the question of what Jesus is commanding here. To love God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. 
he said that was troubling to him or it was confusing to him. He said, it's, you know, I don't think I love God. Now, understand, George was a good man. George was not in any way denying God. George was by pretty much every measure a, a godly man. He had no equivocation. He, was, he wanted to live and he wanted to glorify God. But he said, I don't know that I, I love God. I, I don't love God the way I love my wife and the way I, I love my, my kids. And I had to appreciate his honesty and his transparency. Because I believe what George was saying is true for many, many, many people, and for many Christians it's true, but we would never admit it. And I suspect for many Christians we won't even admit it to ourselves. We don't even recognize this in ourselves. It's just kind of like, well, the Scripture says love God, so, well, we check that box off. You know, I like God, I obey God, I do things for God, God's important to me. But when you compare loving God with all of your being, with the affection that you have for your spouse, for your children, or perhaps for your parents, I think many of us would have to acknowledge something seems to come up short. It's difficult to love one who we have not seen and then compare that to the love that we have of those who have engaged in our lives and that we can see, that we can feel, and that we, we connect with, we, we, we know very, very well. And so I think what George was confessing is something that many of us need to perhaps evaluate within ourselves and ask the question, do I really love God? Do I love God? in the way that I love the people who are around me. Because if that's the first priority, if that's first and foremost, that's kind of an important thing for us to assess. And I suspect that for most of us, and certainly many of us, the answer would be, should be, no, our answer should be like George's. There's a lot of ways I can describe the relationship toward God, but love, the same affection. If that's you, I, I want you to hear this. Not only does it make you normal because of the sense it's, you know, very shared company, but the scripture itself says that we can't love God unless we know that God has loved us. Our very nature, brokenness, our, our distance from God, it's not natural for us to love God unless we are conscious of the way that God has loved us. It's probably true to some extent with the people in our lives. There is this love. If we are loved, we tend to respond with love. And then because we know what that love is, is we're able to, at times to love those who perhaps have disappointed us, hurt us, particularly we see this in terms of with children or or other relationships, we can love those who are wayward even when they're not loving toward us. That's because we know love, we, we've experienced love, we have this great affection. But our natural orientation in this life is not to love God until we know that he has loved us. But when we know that he has loved us, then our response is to love. And so we, we know that we love God in our hearts but only when we are able to love God with our minds. What does that mean to love God with our mind? 
Well, theologian J.I. Packer succinctly says, you know, those who know God have great thoughts of God. It's, it is the thoughts of God that are consistent with who God is. That's how we use our mind to love God. Because God is very nature is, is glorious and holy and perfection. If we recognize who he is, well, we use our minds and remind ourselves of that, then we, we then are, are, are impressed and we are amazed. But it is only this that the scripture says is when we see how God has loved us, then we love. We love because he first loved us. How has he loved us? Well, there's different dimensions to this, and I just want to touch on, on two so that you can use your minds to be thinking on these things, which I believe will then free your hearts. One is the affection that God has for his people. We see it demonstrated over and over throughout the Old Testament. Many people read the Old Testament and they see, you know, these people keep on messing up, and then God continually, you know, he's patient, patient, patience runs out, he brings discipline upon them. And then they experience hardship, difficulty, and ultimately they experience exile uh, apart from the place where they were able to gather together as God's people. But one of the prophets that God uses to speak to his people who were in the midst of experiencing the discipline of God's hand, prophet Zephaniah is speaking to those people and God's speaking through him and he is trying to comfort his people who are in the midst of, we'll call it a timeout much like a parent might be trying to comfort their grounded seven or eight-year-old. If you're a parent and you think about this and you know you've just, you can't overlook an offense and you know, you send your child to the room, they're grounded. And in some cases a child say, you hate me. You know, you overlook that and you move on, they don't understand, you know it's a temper tantrum, but you know, there are times that maybe they feel that way because they equate love with only getting whatever they want. But mature believers, mature people know that love is not just giving everybody what they want. Love is love, and sometimes that means not giving what they want, but love doesn't ever go away. Well, the people of Israel who had been in rebellion had now been uh, experiencing the discipline of God's hand and feeling very alienated, maybe even feeling like God is done with me, God hates me, God doesn't want anything to do with me. And through the prophet Zephaniah, the Lord speaks to his people and he says this, look, the Lord your God, the Lord is mighty to save. The Lord is with you. And the Lord takes great delight in you. In fact, the Lord is not only taking delight in you, he rejoices over you with singing. So the picture there is of the love of God is so great for those who belong to him that even in the midst of their being disciplined, which is an expression of his love, his affection is so great that he sees, he delights. And as we come to worship God and to praise his name, the scripture says that God looks at you who belong to him and he delights, and he is singing about you. That is an amazing, almost an unfathomable picture. It almost seems too good to be true. A friend of mine was a pastor in another part of the country, and he had introduced a song that I hope that we'll introduce here sometime soon. It's not that Isaiah is unwilling. I just haven't found the music for it for him to, to be able to hear it. Uh, but it's taken directly from Zephaniah 3.17. And so they had introduced it in the church and they sang it. And after the service, some people had come up to him. They were wonderful, committed church members. And they said that they're going to have to reconsider whether this is the church for them. If we're going to become one of those touchy-feely churches and we're going to sing just these empty, sentimental things about God singing over us, then this is not the church for us. 
My friend had to go and take them to Zephaniah and said, look, we didn't sing anything that's not in the Scriptures. It was just around the Scripture. But the idea that God would sing over you, that God's love for you is so great, that it's not just that He provides for you and He gives stuff for you, all of that is true. He has an intimate awareness and delights and rejoices over you. And as we uh, sing praises to His name, He sings lullabies to those He loves. This is the affection of our God. And it's out of that great affection that he has redeemed people, that he's called them to be their own. And the scriptures tell us it's not just this experiential and not just the emotional love that seems to be described in Zephaniah 3.17. The scriptures tell us that there is an objective standard of love that has been given to us. While we were still God's enemies, he sent his son who died for us, took the penalty we deserved upon himself, absorbed the full wrath of God upon himself, crushed, died the death we should die, and then rose that we might have life. That's an objective standard that God did that. That his forgiveness is not cheap just saying, eh, forget it. But the penalty has been paid because he loved you so much that he reconciled you, paid to have you. And when we meditate upon that, we think about the significance of somebody who would love us even when we were hateful or despiteful. It becomes a little easier to then also imagine possibility that God might sing us a lullaby. So God's love for his people is both tangible and relational. And the scripture says that when we stop and we love God by thinking about his love for us, it shapes our hearts. It chips away the hard parts. It squeezes out the, the toxins that might keep us from absorbing the good nutrients of love. It makes room for his love to saturate our hearts. And when his love begins to saturate our hearts, our hearts, our lives, orientation has changed. Now, having been loved, the scripture says this is the way that we're made, we now can love. We can love God. And so to love God with a heart begins by loving God with your mind. Now, your mind is also used to love God in other ways, and these are very important. If you notice, everything I just described was theological in nature. I strung together several doctrinal truths that we find in God's Word. That's what we call theology, that awful T word that people are afraid of because doctrine divides, because theology is, is boring. I'll let you in on a little secret. There are many of us who teach theology who are boring, but theology itself is never boring. So find somebody who doesn't bore you and learn what the scriptures say about God. Because it's what we think about God is using our minds to love God. And we do that in our relationships as well. I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'll do it again. But think about those of you who are married, when you first met, when you first, maybe even your first date. And so I'll pick on the guys here. And so let's assume the guy, you know, was just certainly infatuated. And, you know, you're midway through your first date, and he says, I love you, and I want to marry you and spend the rest of my life with you. Now, ladies, if you're wise, you're going to say, well, don't you want to know anything about me? 
nah. I just love you and I'm going to live my life for you and with you and everything else. For those of you who are single women here, if a guy comes to you and does that, run because he's a loser. I mean, that's just, you know, it, it is, you're going to end up in my office and then probably clinical counseling. Let's just save everybody a lot of heartache right now. If the guy tells you in the first date that he loves you, even though he doesn't know anything about you, cash him in and wait for a better deal. Because it's, we know that it's foolish. You can love what you know, but you cannot love fully unless you know more. And the same is true in our relationship with God. We cannot say we love God if we don't want to know anything about him. We need to be looking at God and then looking at his word and see how he's described himself and then see the reality of that as it's born out in our lives and in this world. We need to do as, I don't even remember who the author was that put it, we need to look at the word of God and the theology that it, it teaches in the same way that a soldier that has been deployed looks at the photo of his wife and of his children. It's the same photo. It doesn't ever change, but he is studying every single aspect, noticing new things. And even things that he's seen before, the reminder of it brings him not only comfort, but it brings him joy. We love God with our minds when we want to know what God is like. And then we think about God in the way that he is. But we also love God with our minds when we think his thoughts after us. In other words, that we reorient ourselves. The scripture says, renew your minds according to his word. And this is a particular challenge in our culture today, not only for the world at large, but for the church in particular. Because we're told that we are in a cultural moment right now where most people, as they're surveyed, they view their theology through political lenses rather than viewing their politics and political landscape through theological lenses. That is the climate, that is the environment, that is the water that we are swimming in. And so everything begins with politics, and then we determine whether something is right or wrong, whether somebody is good or somebody is an enemy, on the basis of whether they agree on our politics rather than their orientation to our God. And the reality is to think God's thoughts afterwards, to love God with your mind, means that we recognize everything is theological. It not only tells us what God is like, but it tells us what God thinks and that we view the word world and we view relationships and we view people and we view the values of the culture through the theological lens. And that includes the politics, which may lead you in different places depending on your immediate or broader circumstances, whatever the focus is. But God's word is the standard and loving God means we embrace what he says is good, what he says is true and what he says about us. That's loving God with your mind. And it only happens when we're willing to love God with our hearts. There's one other orientation here of, of loving God. It's not expressed here in, in Matthew, but in Mark's account of the same situation, we have a, a few more details. And there we're told that Jesus said, love God with your heart and with your mind, and not just with your soul, which is all-encompassing, but to love God with your strength. What does it mean to love God with your strength? I'm not going to go in great detail. I, I did in the first service, but I, I do need to touch on this. First and foremost, loving God with your strength is to use your gifts and your talents to the glory of God. As Paul wrote, whatever you do, even eating and drinking, do the glory of God. That's not about manners. That's recognizing that God provided everything. He's providing not only what you need, but things that which will bring you joy. Well, if you have gifts, if you have talents, most of the time we find our joy when we are exercising them in, in some context. And so whatever you do, whatever gifts or talents you have, recognize you will exercise them, giving thanks to God for giving them with a desire that God would be pleased and honored 
by how you exercise them. Loving God with our strength also involves our obedience. In other words, we're doing what God tells us to do. Doing with your body, with your life, what God says we are to do. And this is an area where Christians get confused and we get things turned upside down. We have this tendency to think that if I obey, God will love me. But Jesus says, if you love me, then obey everything I have commanded you. And what you consider foundational and what you consider response matters incredibly. Because if you obey out of the desire for God to love you, it means you're rejecting the love that he already has for you, and there is no rational way for you then to be able to accept it. Fortunately, God breaks through and, and we can accept that, but you will always live in this discomfort because, one, you won't always do what you're supposed to do. None of us do. And the amazing thing is, too, is when we do what Jesus says, if we obey to say, I love you, Lord, then we find out the law is a gift of grace to begin with because God commands us to act in ways in which life was designed to be lived in the first place. And the love for God becomes even greater because we recognize that he has guided us by his word and his spirit. And so obedience to God's word is not optional. It's not for like the graduate level Christian. It is for everyone. And the reason for that is it's the way that you express love for God. We see it reflected even in some of the hymns. Andre Crouch wrote a, a song uh, a generation ago. And in the song, how can I say thanks for all the things that you have done for me? And Jesus' answer, obey. If you obey... That says, I love you, God. But Jesus also says very particular, and it's in this passage as well, all throughout the scriptures, part of that obedience is to be expressed in service to other people. Which is important that we understand. Martin Luther had made this observation, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So the call to obedience and the call to serve the people who are around us, the call to serve our neighbors, is not because God needs that, as if he can't do things on his own, but because we are created to be in community with one another, and we need one another, and the people who are not yet part of Jesus' fold, they need us as well. And so while the first priority is adoration of God, the inseparable part of that is that we would also value or cherish other human beings. In fact, it's impossible, according to what Jesus says here, to be faithful to God and even to say that I love God if you do not love the people who are around you. Why do I say that? Well, the Apostle John says it. In his epistle in John 3.17, he says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in you? Now, it doesn't mean that it's not, but it just, it just says it's so incongruous. It's, it, you're, even if you are a believer, you're acting like an unbeliever if you don't care about the needs of the people who are around you. And then a chapter later, John says this, How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you do not care about your neighbor whom you have seen? 
and John's just not speculating here. There was an incident, a time that obviously made an indelible impression upon his life when Jesus was addressing crowds that were gathering around him. Crowds made up people who were saying, I'm committing my life to you, and others who were still exploring, and others who weren't really sure of what they were doing. And Jesus commends some of the people in the crowd. And he says, essentially, I thank you. Because when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you gave me something to wear to, to keep warm. And some of those people said, whoa, 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 wait a second, Lord. When did we do these things for you? And Jesus said, whenever you have ministered to those who are in need, you are saying, I love you to me. And then he looked at the theologically conservative puffed up church and says, but for the rest of you, you can just get away from me because I don't even know you. And they say, well, wait a second, what do you mean? We followed you. We, we, we've devoted ourselves to hearing and learning and memorizing and quoting your words. What do you mean you don't know us? Well, when I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And when I was in prison, you didn't come to visit me. Depart from me. I have never known you. Well, wait a second. When did we ignore you, Lord? I mean, I know that I was, I've been attentive and I, you know, I love you, Lord. I will, you know, whatever. I mean, I read through and memorized Calvin's Institutes. You know, what more could I possibly do? But whenever you don't minister to the people who are around you, when you don't care about the pains and the plights of those who are around you, you're saying, I don't love you, God. See, Jesus says the most important thing is our God orientation, but it is inseparable from the way that we minister to others. They don't get confused. It doesn't mean that everything we do for others automatically is translated to God, but what God's love for us propels us to do for others, God says, that I am pleased with. And when you minister to the needs of the people who are around you, I am pleased and I feel your love. And it's not insignificant that Jesus uses the word neighbor here. Because neighbor is very limited and it, at the same time is very open-ended. We can be like the Pharisees who, feeling a little bit pricked, said, okay, well, who's my neighbor? To which Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan and through which we recognize that our neighbor in Jesus's mind is anybody who happens to be in a particular proximity. He doesn't give us a geography, he doesn't give us anything, but anybody you encounter. That means somebody that is at the opposite stop sign from you today, they are your neighbor for that 30 seconds, however it is. If they are in need, you should be sensitive to that. And you're going to have many, many encounters throughout the day. Obviously, that also includes the people that are your physical neighbors and, you know, their studies. And I read uh, some things this summer in terms of the neighboring Christian and you know, how we ought to know the people at least, you know, three houses down, unless you live in townhouses like us, well, then it goes to five. And, you know, I guess if you live on a farm, that's a little harder. But that's, uh, but, you know, there's, there's the geographical neighbor. But neighbor is about proximity. And neighbor is very specific, but it doesn't have any limitations. It's been said that Karl Marx loved the working class people. He also didn't like anybody in particular. So it's possible for us to love people in general and nobody in particular. To claim, I, I love people, I'm a good person, I just love, and yet be of no benefit to anyone. In which case, God says, if you don't care, if you're not engaging and helping those who are in need, 
then you're ignoring me. You don't really love me either because you're disobeying and you're not using your strength to love me, which means there's probably something lacking in your understanding of how I have loved you and the reasons I loved you against all the reasons I shouldn't have loved you. And we see these two tracks that are going. And so I ask this question for you today. Who are you engaging so that you may love them and love God through loving them? The scriptures tell us to do good to all people, especially to those in the household of faith. And so maybe you are focused on the household of faith, and maybe that's where most of your time goes. I certainly can't fault you because I'm here and most of my attention is to the church or people who have come to the church. But it should never be limited to the church because you have many other neighbors that you encounter throughout the day and throughout the week. Are you aware of those and in what way are you and what way are we as a church engaging those needs? It's not optional. It's not extra credit. It is the way that we love God. If the answer is, I'm really not engaged, well, you need to think about that. If you don't know how to get engaged, we have people who will help you. Just let us know. But it's not that you need to get involved necessarily only in the things that we are participating in, but it is to get involved. Now, wait a second, this starts sounding like this is a social gospel issue that, you know, you kind of suckered us into that, love God first and then go do the social gospel. It is never the social gospel because we are compelled to go loving God first and because part of loving our neighbors is as we have opportunity to share the reason for our hope, which is that God loved us when we were against, rebellious against him and we couldn't care less against him and we evangelize them as well. It doesn't mean that you only help those that you can evangelize. Sometimes you have to earn the right to be heard and the evangelical church has lost sight of that. And now that more and more the culture is drifting away from the church, it's about time that we recognize maybe we should just go love people and then they may ask for the reason for our hope and then we can share that. Social gospel says as long as we've met the needs, that's all that really matters. The evangelical church, the followers of Jesus Christ, recognize the ultimate need for every person is to be reconciled with God himself, which only comes through faith in Jesus. And so these two tracks, these two rails that form the track. My prayer has been from the time I got here, it continues to be increasingly true of us as a church. And the only way for that to be increasingly true of us as a church is it would be true of us as a people. Now don't take that as a scolding. I'm not saying it's lacking. I'm saying that there's still room for us to grow. It's been evident, at least since I've been here, in many people. And I believe that many more people have joined in and meeting the needs of our neighbors without sacrificing the priority of God. Unless we are doing it with all of our hearts and all of our strength, then there's room to grow. And I don't know about you, but I don't do anything with all of my heart and all of my strength. Which brings us to another problem. What do we do when we don't do love God and we don't love our neighbor? Well, that's where you love God with your mind again and go back and you preach the gospel to yourself. You recognize it's not because of our goodness, not because of what we've done, it's not because of something that we can earn. But when we were God's enemies, he sent his son who died for us. And you preach the gospel to yourself and you're reminded of the love of God. It's the love of God that will soften your heart, chip away the hard parts. It will form you and enable you to love because you will love God more. And it's in loving God because God, you, you're embracing having been loved that you now have the capacity to love other people, many of whom are very unlovable. They're like us. And then I remember how I just asked the question, but if I said, if we don't, it really should have been, what, what should we do when we don't? Because the fact is, it's not an if, it's a when. Every one of us will fail. 
whether it's today, tomorrow, seasons, it just, we're in constant need of grace. And so I'm going to wrap it up with this. So what would I have you to do? Well, one is to, to consciously be aware of, of your hearts toward God and towards other people. Repent where it's hard and believe the gospel of God's love for you, even when you are his enemy, which will shape you. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, "Prayer and re- faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. And just to constantly be aware of that, because in that, then, you will be prepared. And then second, that one of the ancient practices of the Jewish church was to recite this creed every morning. When Jesus went to this, it wasn't a, sh- a surprise to anybody there. Having grown up as a good little Jewish boy, he would have been taught from his earliest days to memorize the Shema, and then to recite it first thing every morning. That the the um, the committed Jew in the ancient days and many even today make it a practice to recite and pray the Shema first thing in the morning and then in the evening before they retire to bed. And while I don't want to put a law on you, but I do think that it's a wonderful practice, and I want to encourage you maybe embrace that and each day declare the creed to yourself, to set your day on track, to get back on track, or as you retire, to recognize that the greatest thing that we are called to is to love God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. And the second is inseparable, though secondary to it, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. For in this, these two rails, hangs the entirety of the law. So may God give us the grace to remind ourselves of it even more. The grace to do it. And even more than that, the grace to delight in it as he delights in his people. Father, we give thanks to you for this word and pray that it would not only be informing, but it would form us. Where it pricks us, where it feels like a kick in the gut, Lord, may we turn to be reminded of your grace that doesn't just overlook our sin, but it is the expression of your love for the unlovely including us. May you grant us the ability to begin to grasp how high and how wide and how long, how deep is your love for us as you have demonstrated it in giving us Christ Jesus. May that love shape us more than the areas where we're wounded and haven't been, where we have not been loved well in our lives. Knowing we are loved by you, May we love you in response. And may we love you by loving those around us. They too may come to know your love. We pray this in the incomparable name of our Redeemer, our King, Christ Jesus. Amen.